I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing Book 11, Christy and the Snobs. Let's get into our one-sentence summaries. I don't know that mine constitutes a summary this week, but I will read it anyway. (laughs) Apparently, jerk is the leading 1980s insult in response to snob, and rich people in Connecticut all have fountains and tennis courts. (laughs) That's fair. That's an Emily summary. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mine is, if you want to cry for 45 minutes, read this book about a dog. <laughs> that goes well with mine, which is just, Louie dies. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Ugh. They should but, rename the book, actually. Oh, Louie dies. <laughs> Louie dies. But it has Lemon. to have Christy in the title. Oh, Christy and... Christy's the- dog, Louie dies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's not funny. (laughs) All right. Wait, you guys, we should probably tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. And I'm Anna Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. If you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. Also, we love it when people write us. So write us at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. Yes, you can write to us like Louise in the UK, who wrote us an email because she wanted to know what her BSC Big Five is. So we introduced this a few episodes back. Um, there is this famous personality test that uh, has a lot of empirical support behind it called the Big Five that lets you know how high you are in different elements of your personality. It's um, a test that does not require that you fit into one type, but gives you sort of how much you are in openness, how much you are in agreeableness. And so we have created our own version of that with the big five being the big five babysitters we have met so far. So Emily, can you read Louise's email to us? I certainly can, Esme. Thank you. (laughs) Good evening. Almost 8 p.m. in the UK, but probably afternoon for you, right? Here goes. I was weird paradox in school at TBH. I wore outlandish, unusual stuff, but was really shy and hated being noticed. Liked some lessons and was generally a good pupil, but didn't really enjoy school itself. Not really a leader or a follower, I don't think. Kind of a wanderer. Fashion-wise, I've been obsessed since I was really little. It's how I express myself. I'm very wedded to my look, but enjoy experimenting. Lots of black, leopard print, bold cuts and shapes, big jewelry. I once commissioned a rainbow flower and gold lobster fascinator to wear to a wedding. Oh, my God. Amazing. Uh, Hard to miss. I was nearly 14 when I got my first period, and I'd started hoping I might have been able to avoid it. Like, maybe (laughs) some women were lucky and just didn't have periods. Nope. Um... Romantic history, no boys until I was 16, very shy, very strict single mother, then spent several years making up for lost time in my capital S, capital Y, slutty years. (laughs) Now happily married to a very good man. Hobbies, never really had any. Does reading count? Browsing Topshop. Used to make jewelry when I was a kid, like a bit of astrology, Aries, Sun, Sag, Moon, Scorpio, Rising, if that helps. It does help some of us. (laughs) Uh, unreasonably unreasonably excited about this concept for a 40 year old pizza toast oh amazing that was a great email amazing Louise this is a really good first BSC big five oh my gosh I'm getting strong Claudia off the bat I feel like the fashion thing is pretty straight off the top I feel like that's definitely there's some yeah because that's not Stacy that's Claudia yeah, can we talk about this flower and gold lobster fascinator? I know. Louise, we may need a picture of this because it sounds amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And the word rainbow is in there too. So it's not like a subtle gold lobster fascinator. I just wonder how big the lobster was. I mean, it can't be super big, right? Because it's a fascinator. True. I thought maybe the fascinator was like, the lobster was a part that like maybe grasped her head. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to need a picture. <laughs> okay, so definitely some strong Claudia, but there's some, and also not just in the fashion, right? But also the 
like not really enjoying school. Also, is a bit Claudia. I think that that strikes me as a bit Dawn too. Oh, is Wander a euphemism for individual? It might be <laughs> the yeah. UK version of it. <laughs> she was really shy and hated being noticed. So yeah. that's very Marianne. Absolutely. Yeah, and I don't know that a lot of people are like a Claudia Marianne combo, but I think yeah. that the you know late period um, and strict single parent. Mm-hmm. Right, that's some Marianne vibes too. And first hobby she mentions reading, and I okay. feel like if Marianne was English, she would browse Topshop a lot. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so Claudia and Marianne are our leading mm-hmm. percentages. We think. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But, and I think there's a sprinkle of Dawn in there. Like I think of the girls, Dawn's most likely to be like lightly into astrology. For sure. And I think that wanderer idea, I like, I can see Dawn describing herself that way. And like, you know, all who wander are not lost and, you know, what you can discover about the world. When you wander. Yes. Uh, Any, I'm not really getting much Christy. I mean, except for the period thing. Right. Yeah. So maybe that's a a tiny bit of Christy. Right. Because Christy doesn't hate being noticed. Christy is not into fashion. I do think that interesting, another paradox Aside from school, or that is the paradox, actually, right? That the wearing outlandish things and being hard to miss, but also at the same time not liking to be noticed is kind mm-hmm. of a... I don't know if that's where the Claudia and the Marianne meet, or if that's mm-hmm. actually like a more... Pulls one one way or the other a bit more. Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah, to me, that's like kind of where they coexist. Mm. Because it sounds like she was sort of like... Both of those are very strong. Right. Like, mm-hmm. even though she doesn't want to be noticed, she's still gonna, you know, make and wear her big jewelry and all of those other things. Okay, but okay, so no voice until she was 16, and then she entered her slutty years. Mm-hmm. So if we look forward, the girls are only 13, who at 16 and beyond would have become a little bit, you know, slutty. Dawn. Dawn, yeah, I think that's a Don also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, no hesitation. I feel like that's Don. Marianne's going to keep being a serial monogamist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stacy's already out of her slutty years by the time she gets to 16. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. <laughs> right, yeah. though? And I don't feel like Christy's ever going to, that's not going to be Christy's yeah. jam. Yeah, I think that's a Don, strong Don vibe as well. Okay, so I'm getting more done the more we ruminate on it. Yeah. yeah. So are we at, so we're at a tiny bit of Christy because of the late period and that's it? Yeah. Kind of like we gave Ashley a tiny bit of Dawn because I think of the we gave her five percent. <laughs> okay, and then Stacy. Is there any Stacy? I'm not getting much Stacy, honestly. Yeah. I mean she said she was a good student. Right, but Stacy likes school. I mean the yeah. good the good student could also just be Marianne, right? I mean, they're like all good students except Claudia, basically, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's stick some percentages on this. All right, so are we thinking the Claudia and the Marianne are equal and they're just like duking it out? Or do we think she's a little bit more one or the other? I think she, I'm getting more Claudia. Yeah. Like an 80 Claudia? Like 85. Like 85 seems a little high to me just because I'm thinking of like our last when we did the one for Ashley and we gave her 85 Marianne. I feel like she mm-hmm. was like very clearly Marianne. But I guess her, but her, if her, if she's 85 Claudia and like 80 Marianne, that's fine if we think they're both high. All right. So 85 Claudia. Yeah. I think they're both high. So I think if it's 85 Claudia, I think 85, 80 Marianne. Yeah, that seems yeah, right. Okay. I think so. And what do you think for Dawn, Emily, as our resident Dawn expert? Over 50%. Yeah. I was but, thinking like 60. Yeah. Yeah. But I was going to say definitely not up to 75. 60. Okay. Yeah. 60. And then we're going to say, you know, but Stacy does like fashion. Yeah, but not this kind of fashion. Well, but she thinks Claudia looks amazing when she does it. She's like mm-hmm. interested in it. Right. But is fashion the vehicle through which Stacy expresses herself? I feel like Stacy is very expressive in other ways, right? She likes Mary Poppins, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, somebody made a like tote bag that says like, lead like Christy, create like Claudia and all of those kinds of things. But it was dressed like Stacy. And I felt like Stacy got the short, sh- I feel like Stacy's more than just how she dresses. Like yeah. Marianne got love like Marianne and Stacy gets dressed like Stacy. I was like, Ooh. Well, 
It's not yeah, fair. Stacy knows psychology. Yeah. Ooh, don't even, so I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Be savvy like Stacy. Analyze like Stacy. Okay. Are we thinking like no Stacy, no Christy? Well, 5% is okay. the period. Yeah. 5% Christy? Yeah. Then I feel like she's 5% Stacy because she's like into it. Fashion. All right. Let's do it. There you are, Louise. 85% Claudia, 80% Marianne, 60% Dawn, and 5% each Christy and Stacy. You sound freaking awesome. Let us know, know if right? we can see that fascinator. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so back back to these snobs in this book. So I know that most of our one-sentence summaries focused not on snobs, but on, on Louie the dog. Yeah. The snobs were like a welcome diversion. Esme, you have a little, you know, you have an association with this book that is very near to your heart, if you want to give. Yeah, I just, I had a hard time, you know, I'll say my, my general, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about grief and how she portrays grief, because I think she did a great job. Um, and I, I especially really liked that she did it developmentally appropriately. Like, I think you get to see how Charlie's processing this, how David Michael's processing this, how Christie's processing it, how Elizabeth is processing it. Um, and I, I found it really, really hard um, because I read it and we had to put our dog down last year and I was the mom in the room holding him. And my younger daughter, June, it was a little more, it was a little over last year, but she was David Michael's age at the time. I guess it was almost two years ago now. Yeah. And she reacted very similarly to how David Michael reacted. So this is like much worse of a cry fest than usual for me. Um, but I'm assuming that you guys also had a hard time and that it wasn't like, it seems like it's sad, even if you haven't been in that position literally very recently. I'm not trying to laugh. It's just, I'm, I'm often like, are you crying <laughs> on oh. this podcast? And right now I really want to ask, are you crying? <laughs> I'm not actually I'm very proud of myself right now. I'm like totally, totally level. I think, cause I've talked about it a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, but it is really sad, right? She does a nice job evoking how all the different kids are oh, yeah. interacting about Karen too. And Andrew, I mean, she sort of covers the lifespan about how they all manage it mm-hmm. and understand death. Yeah. It's interesting that the death is kind of the thing also that ultimately leads to Christy finding common ground with the the snobs in her neighborhood who are her age and who are, are her babysitting rivals, you know, that mm-hmm. like they trade off these weird pranks and turns out there's some jealousy happening, but like the the death of a pet is like the the thing that mm-hmm. ultimately kind of connects them or acts as a bridge through all Absolutely. their other things. Yeah. Well, and it's very commonly, you know, if you, if you have, if you're lucky enough to have um, a life in which death is not super common for you as a child, it is very common first death that kids experience. Right. Um, and so, and it's also something that's pretty unimaginable if you have a close relationship with a pet until it's time. And so it's not surprising to me that that's what like pulls Shannon Christie's chief rival in in Watson's Tony neighborhood in um, is that idea of, you know, that Louie could be gone and that you could have that kind of a loss, I think really shakes her. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you have never had a dog, um, but you still cried for 40 minutes while you read this book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what I find interesting is the last, the last couple of books we've read are, have been very like boy focused. Mm-hmm. And with Christy, it's really about her family. Mm-hmm. And I think out of all the books you've read so far, this is probably the deepest portrayal of family mm-hmm. that, we've, that we've read so far. And yeah. I found that really refreshing just after like Logan and like Boy Crazy Stacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if, if it's just because Christy has the biggest family and she's also not into boys yet mm-hmm. that we get this book, but it seems like, Anna Martin specifically wanted to talk about Louie in this mm-hmm. way. Like, I, I feel like she probably knew she wanted to talk about the death of a family pet at some mm-hmm. point in the series. And this is a book she did it in. And I don't know. I think it, there's a lot more emotional uh, pool in this book than a lot of the other books. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think just like, like listening to Christy is like 
is was like her mind is cool and I feel like the way she um her perspective on things is cool like in the beginning you know in, in the other books people kind of just uh they'll like describe all the the, the members of the club really quickly mm-hmm. but she like does this take on everyone that's like yeah. like a big re- list yeah it's like a big list of like every single person and it was I found that really interesting and it's the first description of where Don is an individual yes <laughs> I finally I finally arrive yeah. I finally get a trope all on its own separate sentence Don is an individual page 17 I would like yeah. our listeners to know that Esme and Anne both commented on the shirt I'm wearing today using <laughs> <Yeah>. that phrase <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. an individual. Uh, it's uh yeah, she she I think she thinks really deeply mm-hmm. about those around her and um pays close attention. Mm-hmm. Um which is sort of back to what you you spoke about liking about her. I think back in Christie's great idea, Anne, but this idea that she's um, you know, she's she's humble, like she has a big mouth, but she knows when she needs to then make amends and fix fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's partly because of her empathy and her understanding of mm-hmm. her family members and her friends. Yeah, definitely. It's just cool to um, see how much like detail she put into the members descriptions because you usually don't get that. It's mm-hmm. like and she gives she does like a likes and dislikes of every person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh. Like with Claudia, she even goes, personality, outgoing, sometimes feels inferior to Janine. <laughs> like she just like, she really like goes to a different level instead of just saying like, she's shy and she dresses cool. Um, she has perfect skin. Yeah, exactly. yeah. She does call her exotic though. She does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Christy, we'll talk about that in the tallies, but Christy and Marianne are definitely the most judgmental. And the <laughs> right. I did think it was interesting how in this, uh, I was just going to say, I think she shows a lot of maturity, if that makes sense as a way to talk about how she's dealing with the grief around Louis. Like her processing is like, I understood now that he was in pain and like the, the, the way that she's sort of grappling with that juxtaposed with her kind of like real immaturity around the neighbor girls and like all the stuff around the snobs was really interesting too. Cause it's like, she clearly has so much room for people that she cares about, but there's like a high threshold for her for getting to there. And before that, she's like, no, thank you. I will have nothing to do with your business. And I will not spend an ounce of my time, like acting toward you in any mature way. <laughs> oh, I feel a little called out. Like, Wait, do you do that? like, <laughs> that's like definitely a way in which I'm like Christy I'm like if you're in you're in and I'm going to pay a ton of attention and I'm going to be really really thoughtful but otherwise I just don't even like I didn't come here to make friends I'm not like I'm not I don't I don't need more I I just like focus on those that are already in the inside that's so funny (laughs) yeah I do think she makes a ton of assumptions about other people, obviously. And there's some stuff going on with, you know, she moves to this new neighborhood and she assumes that all of the kids are going to hate her and all of the dogs are going to make fun of Louis for not being a purebred collie and all of these other things. And so, but I think that unevenness that you're talking about is really what we've been talking about this whole podcast, right? Like that's 12 and 13. And it makes sense to me that she's had this really good model in her family with Elizabeth and with Charlie and Sam, where they talk about emotions pretty effectively and they're really close. And by this time she's like down with Watson, not down with Watson, but like she's in with Watson and with Karen and Andrew. And so she feels close and comfortable and she has the vocabulary to understand what's going on there. And then with peers, Christy kind of has a hard time, right? You think about like how, envious and jealous she was of the relationship between Don and Marianne. Um, and she's, she's kind of stuck in, you know, I'm friends with the people I've known since I was born. Um, Claudia and Marianne and like was a little suspicious of Stacy and was a little suspicious of Don. And now I'm supposed to make friends with these new people and look at their house. They must be snobs and terrible people. So that it makes sense to me that she would be uneven in that way. Yeah, that makes sense. So in one of her first encounters with the snobs, so the snobs are her neighbors. Um, one of them is Shannon. And she sees her, well, first on the first day of school, they have a little kind of bitchy interaction with each other. 
And then later, soon after that, uh, Chrissy's taking Louie on a walk. And then Shannon has her purebred Bernice mountain dog, Astrid. And Amanda, a younger neighbor who is walking her cat. <laughs> yeah. On a leash. I think she's carrying her. But okay. why? Why are you walking your Persian cat around? Your perfectly white Persian cat. You just walk it around the neighborhood. Yeah, Hello, I want everyone to know how rich I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have any of you seen a person walking around the neighborhood in any of the cities you've lived in holding holding a cat? I live in Williamsburg. So, so is that a yes? I've seen people walking their cats on leashes before. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I've seen people in New York walk their cats on leashes. Yeah. I mean, it is not common to be clear. And when it happens, everyone on the street is like, what are you doing, bro? It's usually a bro somehow. <laughs> I, I've seen one person on a walk with their dog. And then this was in Sacramento. And then the cat was like following, but not on a leash. It was just an outdoor cat. And, and we were like, oh, look at that funny cat. He's like, oh, yeah, that's our cat. He likes to come along with us. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I've never seen someone like walking their cat. Well, they're not. I feel like walking a cat makes more sense than just carrying, carrying, cat it, around. And carrying it around. No, the like, cat's like, meow, carry me, please. <laughs> <laughs> Was that your Priscilla voice? Like, yes, meow. <laughs> yes. That's better than your uh, granny and pop pop accent. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not go down that road again. <laughs> so, yes, Priscilla. She also points out the girl Amanda that she costs four hundred dollars. Four hundred nineteen eighty-eight dollars. Yes. Okay, so, so like, what is that? Let's Esme Esme do her her Esme math. I mean, doing, it's called doing Esme math calculating. It's called, it's called Google, you guys. <laughs> so eight hundred seventy-one dollars and sixty-seven cents today. Such a Stacy. I can't tell if that's a lot of money or not for a cat these days. I mean, yes. It of is. course, it's a lot of money for a cat, but I don't know what purebred Persian cats cost. Right. That is also something that Google could tell us. I think if you buy a cat that's like the hypoallergenic, if you have really bad allergies, it's like in the one to $200 range. <laughs> no, if it was in the one to $200 range, I would buy one of those hypoallergenic cats. I think it's in the $2,000 range. No, it's not. I'm going to find you a hypoallergenic cat for $200. Dude, if you find one for $200, I will. Oh my God. Right. I'd be so excited. I want one of those cats too. I better get $200 so that I can get you a cat for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Persian cats can cost you anywhere from $500 up to $5,000. $5,000? Mm-hmm. Wow, I guess they got a real deal with Priscilla. Yeah. <laughs> this Priscilla must have been like a black market Persian or something. Yeah. Yeah. So the kids are snobby and some of them are bratty. Some of them have fountains. So in between all the Louis dying stuff and also the snobs, there is some babysitting going There's on. There's actually a little bit too much babysitting for my taste. Including the pikes or like five of the pikes have chicken pox, mm-hmm. which would be a great episode of whoops. Yes. That was a pretty, like, that's something that wouldn't happen today. You know, kids are vaccinated against varicella now. So nobody knows. That's like a thing that I wonder if they changed in the L Fanning audiobook because, I mean, I remember that. I remember mm-hmm. going to people's houses to try to catch the chicken pox when we were kids. And No, totally. Um, but there's this, there are these new babysitting charges in Chrissy's new neighborhood the Delaney's and Christy babysits them when they're horrible. She's like, I can't handle these snobby kids. And then Stacy's like, I got it. <laughs> Bitch, please let me. <laughs> so she's like some armchair psychologist who's an expert at dealing with difficult children, apparently. Um, so Esme, I would like you to go through this chapter because I did not understand Stacy's logic with all of this or like what kind of psychology this is this even is do they teach this in school I just I'm don't so excited to talk understand about when she became such an expert in psychology yeah. like would she like take a she like read an article over the summer she's like I'm an eighth grader now I'm a psych expert you know Stacy's very sophisticated yes <laughs> I guess as she reads and she grew up in Manhattan 
everybody there is in therapy. I bet she reads a lot of books, not, not usually the good kind of therapy in the eighties, but, um, yeah, I'm so excited about this chapter. So do do you guys want to describe what you remember about it? Because I, I'm going to tell you what I think she did, but this is chapter nine. It starts on page 79. Um, and so like, the, the, the main issue with the Delaney's, right, is that they're really bratty. So when Christy was there, they were really demanding. They were like, get me a Coke. This has ice. I don't want ice or whatever. Like they just ordered her around and Christy was thought they were really rude and terrible. So Stacy shows up and what happens first? Well, could you actually just read the, her entry first? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to talk a lot. One of you guys read it. <laughs> Okay, so I sat for the snobs today, and no big deal. You just have to know how to handle them. You have to know a little psychology, and I happen to know psychology, that is. I read this magazine article called Getting What You Want, Dealing with Difficult People the Easy Way. It's kind of hard to explain what you're supposed to do, so I'll just give you some examples of how I dealt with the snobs. You'll see that they can be tamed. Plus, I found that once you've tamed them, they're pretty nice little kids. Yeah. Uh, And then she makes a weird Shakespeare reference. (laughs) (laughs) Taming of the snobs. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not not 10 things I hate about you. (laughs) My interpretation of this is Stacy is like pretending she's Mary Poppins. (laughs) And she's like, and she's like, I'm going to show these kids a lesson. And she like does these quirky things where the kids are like, this baby said it was weird, but she's kind of cool. Yeah. So she actually said that in the next chapter to Christy when she's giving her advice on how to handle them. She says, I was like, Mary Poppins gone crazy. Um, What psychological principles are at play? So basically she shows up and normal babysitting thing to say, she walks into their messy room and says, let's get this room in shape. Then we can go outside. And Anne, could you read Amanda's response on page 80? If you want to go outside, then clean it yourself, said Amanda. We like it messy. She stood back, folded her arms and glared at Stacy. Max imitated her. What's Stacy gonna do? Then Emily, how does Stacy respond? Stacy was prepared for something like this. She pretended to gaze around the room. Then she said seriously, you know, you're right. I like a really messy room. In fact, I don't think this room is messy enough. Look at this. A whole set of Lincoln Logs. They're not even on the floor. Stacy poured the Lincoln Logs into the toy soup. <laughs> LOL toy soup. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So then she keeps doing this. Right. And she keeps she takes out like a whole pack of construction paper and throws it around. She starts like throwing individual pieces of a jigsaw puzzle around the room. Um, And eventually the kids get upset and they start to clean it up. Right. So you may think, you know, lots of people say colloquially reverse psychology, you know, and like I'm going to use reverse psychology. It's not an actual thing, but it's a it's a phrase we have. Um, but I think she's doing something even more specific here, which I really, really love. Um, and you'll, because you both know me in life, you'll not be surprised to know that it's behaviorism. Um, and it's a behavioral principle that is often misunderstood and quoted wrong all the time in pop culture. So I'm excited that we get to talk about it, which is negative reinforcement. So do either of you think you know what negative reinforcement is? Forget about this chapter for a second. Can you give me a definition of negative reinforcement? Nope. Anne? Where do you reinforce something negatively? (laughs) (laughs) Could you give an example of something you think is negative reinforcement? Uh, Wait, didn't Janine talk about this? No. Yeah, she got it wrong. She got it wrong. On the show? Yeah, on the show. Um, I don't know. I feel like you're trying to get me to say something wrong. Uh, well, I am because I think most of our listeners will agree with you and most people don't know it. So this is not like this is a common thing that most people don't know. So that's why She's I'm asking. negatively reinforcing you. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. So reinforcement on its own is is the increasing of a desired behavior right? So we talk a lot about positive reinforcement. It's pretty obvious, right? So you do your job well, you get paid. You do, you write a good essay, you get an A. Uh, Louis sits, he gets a treat, right? That's positive reinforcement, the behavior you want to see more of. And then you give something, a, somebody a desired thing, right? So give them something they want because they did something you want. But reinforcement is always increasing a desired behavior. That's what it's about. And the positive and the negative don't mean good or bad. They mean adding or taking away. So positive reinforcement is you add 
a treat, a plus, think of a plus sign for positive. You add a treat to increase the behavior. Negative reinforcement is you take away something aversive to increase a behavior. Does that make sense? So common things in daily life are like when you get in your car and it goes beep, 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 beep until you put your seatbelt on. The beeping gets taken away to reinforce the behavior of putting your seatbelt on. Or if you have a headache and you take uh, over-the-counter headache medication, your headache goes away. That's the aversive. And it reinforces you taking that medication next time you have a headache. Mm-hmm. So I think in this whole chapter, Stacy's using negative reinforcement. She's creating this uncomfortable, weird world that the kids don't understand. And when they do the desired behavior, that weirdness goes away. And Stacy becomes like kind and normal and like a regular babysitter again. So when they start cleaning their rooms, she stops being bizarre. Hmm. Um, And there's a, there's a couple other examples like um, Max asks for milk. Mm -hmm. um, And. Oh yeah. She's like, sure. I'll get you Kool-Aid and iced tea and whatever (laughs) and whatever. (laughs) I guess while I'm at it, I'll get some orange juice, some high line punch, maybe some iced tea. And he's like, no, that's okay. I'll just get it myself. And then he looks at her and says, poor, he commanded. And Stacy knew he was testing her. Okay, said Stacy. But instead of taking the milk carton from Max, she opened a cupboard and began removing glasses and setting them on the table um, so that she was going to. So Max just said, poor. He didn't say how much he wanted. I thought I'd better be prepared. So basically, as long, whenever they're demanding, she adds this aversive of being really weird and confusing. And then as soon as they do the behavior she wants, she takes it away. Hmm. So what she did was smart. So smart. It's very hard to use negative reinforcement effectively. It's something I work a lot with parents and teens about. Um, And she did an amazing job. And I was just so excited the whole time because I think it's not a super obvious example. Um, But then once you see it that way, it's hard not to see it that way. That's so funny. We're speechless. (laughs) I'm like trying to think about all the times that I've tried to get Keely and June to do things that they didn't want to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually like annoying them is very effective. Yeah. It's negative yeah. reinforcement. Yeah. So mm-hmm. nagging, nagging is negative reinforcement. It, it usually doesn't work. That's the thing yeah. isn't nagging usually turns into a punisher. So it's not a good method of changing behavior. But if you get a good aversive that people really want to avoid. You know, oh yeah, the thing like that, I'm going to sing yeah. this one song over and over and over again until you agree to do the thing that I want to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or when we like beg your sister to play a game with us and she's like, fine. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. That's negative reinforcement. Hi, so Aaron, basically, hello, hello. Play with us, play with us, play with yeah. us, play with us. <laughs> so yeah. Being annoying until the other person relents. And then you, right. then you take away the annoying behavior. <laughs> right. And you take away the annoying behavior. Exactly. So look, the best way to learn is always positive reinforcement. That's what teaches people things. That's what learns new behaviors. The second best thing is negative reinforcement. And then punishment doesn't teach anything new. We can talk about that on a different episode. Um, but punishment is not effective, which is why prisons aren't good. Um, so Among many reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as a psychologist, I would argue it's the main reason because it's not yeah. at all doing the thing that you want it to be doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. that's I mean, talk for a different time. That the phantom caller isn't learning any lessons in prison right oh, now. He sure is nope. not. Justice. <laughs> justice for the phantom. Hashtag justice for the phantom. <laughs> okay. So do you guys feel like you get it? You understand negative reinforcement? Yes. Excellent. That was my favorite thing in this book. That <laughs> yeah, was really good. I just love that she's like, hold on, I read this article and suddenly I'm a genius. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I really liked that she didn't actually know what principles she was using. It was like yeah. clear that it was like what an eighth grader picked up from this article. So I did like that. All right, Emily, I feel like there's should have been a lot of class stuff in this book because it's all about the rich neighborhood, but I don't know how much there actually was. I don't know. There's a lot of judgments. I went very confused about what we're supposed to think about rich people reading this book because we've had a lot of like good rich folks versus bad rich folks stuff going on. And in this one, I'm like, Christy is just dripping with disdain for like every, every like thing that people 
own and but she's like now come around on watson like turns out watson's not actually that rich um <laughs> she describes the kitchen and all of his sunbeam toasters are missing so i don't know what happened to those I know, what's up with that? um yeah like watson doesn't have a tennis court and uh, by the way did you read the the list of things that mm-hmm. all the everyone in her neighborhood has can we just mm-hmm. look at it it's the very beginning yeah it sounds pretty sweet well it's also like a page two my brothers and I still go to public school, not to snobby private schools. Well, actually, let's start from the beginning of that paragraph. Okay. <laughs> anyway, to get back to the snobs, I'm surrounded. They're everywhere in Watson's neighborhood. The teenagers around here get their own cars, fancy ones, as soon as they're able to drive. They spin along with their radios blaring, looking fresh and sophisticated. Oh, sorry, Stacy, <laughs> dig at you. I am... <laughs> So glad my big brothers, Sam and Charlie, aren't like that. Charlie can drive now, but the only thing he drives is mom's beat-up station wagon. Uh, missed opportunity from the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my brothers and I still go to public school, not to stop me private schools. Guess what most families on our street have? A, a swimming pool. B, tennis courts. C, a cook named Agnes. <laughs> or D, all of the above. The answer is D, all of the above. <laughs> So far, Watson has none of the above, though, which is one of the things that I'm learning to like about him. Like, what? Oh, well, he's talking about putting in a pool, though, so <laughs> maybe he'll be ready for hell any day now. <laughs> I mean, the fact that Watson doesn't have a pool is kind of disappointing, I have to say. Yeah. Right? I'm really yeah. hung up on this cook named Agnes thing. Yeah. Well, I thought it was very interesting because, like, where is Agnes from? Is Agnes like a like a... English or Irish immigrant, like who who's the, who are the cooks in Stony Brook in 1988? Like well, right, because we've talked yeah. a little bit about like about care chains and a little bit about migrant care work, in, mm-hmm. in just discussing like the general kind of economic structure of childcare in you know wealthy places in the Northeast. But like, I don't know who would have been like what demographic would have been most present in those fancy ass neighborhoods. But I'm like, is Agnes a problematic trope? Is it just some like, I don't know, cultural reference point from the eighties that I'm not getting like, like sociopolitically, I was like, this doesn't register for me. I don't really know um, what it's, what I'm supposed to, (laughs) how I'm supposed to digest that. Well, agreed. I have to say when I was reading all the descriptions of these houses, I was like, is this daddy Warbucks's house? (laughs) because <laughs> you know there's that song i think yeah. i'm gonna like to hear it they're like the pool the tennis courts yeah. and she's like well yeah. bring you your food her satin sheets yeah. <sighs> yeah that's true so m- m- mrs pute no she's she just takes the tray away i'm she like who's the, the cook away. is her name agnes <laughs> it's, it's not i checked oh anna martin's just like nope let's i'm just gonna go straight annie for this one <laughs> 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 I feel like what other, what would be her references for super super rich people if not Annie? I mean, she grew I up in know. Princeton. I know that's true. We still need to yeah. look up who are the Pikes. <laughs> yes, we'll figure it out someday. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, but I was I was going to say I think one of the things too that's interesting about Stacy and Christie's budding friendship in this book is that like, right? We already see Christy making affiliations between like how she describes Stacy and how she describes the snobs, but she's never called Stacy a snob, but mm-hmm. she's like, but the stakes for Stacy are different than the ones for Christy with the kids and with like trying to manage people in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. And I think that that is kind of an interesting, I, I'm not sure normatively what we're supposed to learn from Christy's kind of treatment of the snobs, like mm-hmm. as readers of, or consumers of these characters. But like, I do think there's some interesting ways in which this um, book, especially advances Christy and Stacy's like seeing more eye to eye and like Mm -hmm. be getting a little tighter, but Mm -hmm. Stacy doesn't talk about like her New York city friends as rich snobs, but presumably right. They lived on the upper West side. Oh, and she goes to a day school. She goes to a private yeah. school. Lane's dad is a Broadway producer. And her mom like, is a lazy had, stay-at-home mom. Right. <laughs> who goes shopping oh. every day. <laughs> Stacey's friends were rich, for sure. Right. Um, but, like, Stacey doesn't obsess over that. Right. Well, I don't think Stacey sees it. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't think, like, if you think that that's what's normal, you think that that's what's normal. And in New York, in the 80s, white people super normalized going to private school. 
Right. Right. That was like, shout out to nice white parents. You guys should be listening to it. Great podcast. It was super normal. I mean, I, you know, my husband grew up in New York in the eighties and I met him and it was very much like, oh, well, you know, you, you have to go to private school. Like, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't something that was ever interrogated. You know, it was like, that is what you do um, for a large proportion of white people in New York in the eighties. Right. And presumably the public schools in Stony Brook are still Lily White, they're still in zones that pay pretty high property taxes and they're not as, um, you know, as filled with the problems as the <laughs> New York City school right. yeah. Scare quotes abound, of course. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, <laughs> label your scare quotes for our listeners. <laughs> scare yeah. quotes abound, always. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think that Christy's too judgy? I mean, she's kind of judgy. I think she makes snap judgments about the world, but I think she's willing to go back and notice that, you know, she made a mistake. I still don't know what we're supposed to think about rich people. (laughs) Well, I don't think they know. I mean, I feel like all of us, and Emily still lives in New York, but I think when I moved to New York when I was 23, I was very naive about just like the economics of the East coast in particular New York city. Cause like we grew up in Sacramento I mean, we grew up in a nice neighborhood and we had a good public public school system where we went to good schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but like, there wasn't like, like rich people were like people who were lawyers or doctors. Mm-hmm. Well, there oh, we didn't interact with the really rich people in Sacramento. Like there's That's definitely true. old money there, but they mm-hmm. went to the private they schools, went to the private right? Schools, even, yeah. even though the public schools were good. So I wonder if it's sort of like that in Stony Brook, mm-hmm. like the, there's, there's, there's plenty of, um, high income people, but there's, but the, the extent of the old money on the East coast, I think was a shock to yeah. Definitely to me. Yeah. I don't know if it's also shocking to you, Emily, when you came. Oh, yeah. I mean, I go to CUNY yeah. school so, <laughs> or teach at a CUNY school. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think even I developed a weird chip on my shoulder about it. Like the more it became revealed to me how I worked in an industry where people came from very privileged, privileged families. And I didn't realize mm-hmm. that for a long time. I was like, why does everyone else have such nice clothes? And I'm making $28,000 a year and I can barely pay rent, you know? And then I was like, Oh, yeah. everyone, I would say 80% of the people I worked with came from pretty wealthy families. And then yeah. suddenly I was like, yeah. wait, like, am I like, how did this happen? And like, I didn't, it was just a very confusing thing for me. And I, I think like, being around that environment made me feel a little bit bitter towards uh-huh. people uh-huh. who came from a lot of money um, uh-huh. just because I saw all the advantages they had that whereas yeah. I grew up with a lot of privilege, obviously, but just not as much as they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe Chris, this is Christy's like budding kind of observing of that, but not quite having the language right. yet to name it. Right. She's not yet mm-hmm. seeing the long-term effects of like intergenerational wealth, but she's our, I mean, we already, we talked a little bit about how in the beginning, in the first book where they're talking about moving, she's worried about, you know, what's my relationship to Watts and like, what can I ask him for? Although pause when she plays a prank where she sends diapers to the Shannon's house for two weeks. I'm like, so that's the thing you're going to presumably have Watson pay for now (laughs) is you're going to prank send diapers to people. You were worried about asking for a a VCR in your room. (laughs) I know. I know. Introduce Um, real quick around like how, how much money she's comfortable spending. (laughs) Yeah. Can we also talk about how when she sends the diapers to Shannon as a joke, the guy delivers them in a stork costume? (laughs) I want to live in this world where that happens. Like if I could have subscribed to a diaper service when the girls were small and they got delivered by a full size actual man stork, I would have been into it. (laughs) Yeah, but how much is that man stork getting paid? Come on. (laughs) I mean, he's like the teens at Sea City in the animal costumes being exploited. (laughs) Emily, are they making my life more whimsical or not? At what cost, Esme? At what cost? Esme's like, that man in store costume has the most coveted job in Stony Brook. Everyone wants that job. (laughs) 
It's awesome. I just like the whimsy a lot. Emily, I, I was curious of what you made of, you know, in the in the first chapter, Christy makes this little speech about how mom and Watson share the chores equally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just wondering what you make about that, because it's the first time we've gotten any hint of that. I mean, we know that both of the Kishis work, obviously yeah. Richard is a single dad, but um, this idea of kind of gender parity around the house is not something that's been discussed. I was just wondering what what you made of it. It's not like something that's super dwelled upon, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it does seem, right, like her mentioning of it is intentional in that way. I think we've talked a bit about how among the various babysitting charges, like some of the dads in particular are more and less absent and more or less appear to be doing any kind of childcare at all or, or care okay, around you the missed your new- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> fuck is Mr. Newton. (laughs) Um, But I do, I think it's interesting too, because a lot of Christie's kind of passing, you know, passing judgments of Stacy's mom and things like that seem to me to probably be things she's learning from her mom's own, own like 1980s version of, of white lady feminism, right? Mm -hmm. Her mom's like, I'm raising these kids by myself, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I'm not like her marriage to Watson is clearly not a transactional one for her. And she has gone to great lengths to make sure that the families feel integrated and that there's, um, you know, that like kids aren't being fallen by the wayside or falling through the cracks or whatever. And so I think that like, that is probably reflective of, of um, Elizabeth Brewer's like, you know, her own sort of values kind of trickling down mm-hmm. through or Christy sort of picking up on those and um, noticing things that her mom has flagged for her about mm-hmm. life. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no equally shared parenting in Sonia Brooks so no. far. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. But I do think, and I think Watson's commitment to being a really present father is probably another thing that like leads him to, right? Like he's not committed to that, Mr. Spear version of like my kid is my caretaker like what sexism and so he is probably more open I think to um, mm-hmm. like just insofar as like he values childcare that's already makes him more open to mm-hmm. broader kinds of gender parity in, in other aspects of home making and home and reproductive labor yeah mm-hmm. I, do I like Watson? I don't know I think I like Watson but he's so rich yeah you just want him to give his money away yeah, all of it. Who needs that many sunbeam toaster ovens? I know. I know. No one. <laughs> Unless you want to make a lot of chickens at the same time. Oh no, meatloaf. Meatloaf, sorry. Esme, come on. Esme, come on. It's meatloaf. What else are you going to make in a toaster oven? Uh, yeah, I think that was sort of... I'm mostly obsessed with all the imagery of the, the rich folks in this book. It's quite funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Anne? Well, not much going on in terms of pop culture. The one thing that I noticed was the song that David Michael likes called Brother Louie. And with the, you know, people don't know the song. It's a song with the chorus that's like, Louie, 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 which I think a lot of people recognize as a theme song to a person that we can't talk about anymore. <laughs> but, um, Oh, yeah. I didn't know that was his theme song. So I was like, at first I was like, Oh, this is like, a fictional song because, you know, Anna Martin doesn't really put in a lot of real music references, right? Uh, from the Slime Kings and Smash, those were both famous. <laughs> so I was like, oh, but this is a real song. Like, and I was like, oh, I know this song. And I was playing it um, on my computer. Mike was like, oh, I know this song. So then I was like, oh, okay. So it was uh, recorded by Hot Chocolate, a UK band in 1973. And it was later covered by the band Stories. Um, both did relatively well on the charts. But mm-hmm. then I read like the Wikipedia and the lyrics. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, wait, why was David Michael singing this song? So let me go through some of the lyrics. Louis, 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 why? Yeah. That's, that's not it? It's not just well, that? Well, hang on. <laughs> no, no, that's so, the whole song. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's an interracial love song. Nice. So these are, it starts out with, she was black as the night. Louis was whiter than white. Danger, danger when you taste brown sugar. Louis fell in love overnight. 
So it goes on to tell the story. So then I'm thinking if David Michael knows the chorus, does he also know all the all the verses? <laughs> so wait, how old is David Michael again? Seven. <laughs> so oh, and then there's another verse that goes, All right, what's all this about? I love her man. Oh yeah, man, let me tell you. I don't want no honky in my family, you dig. No honky in my family. So then yeah. I'm picturing. Yeah, it gets real serious. Yeah. yeah. So then I'm picked to play the song at Louis's like funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I was like, well, do they play the entire song? Like, did it start? And then they just, or did they just cut to like the chorus and have some edit where they just sang? But you know what I mean? It seems a little bit odd now. Or or are they like dancing to it, or is everyone somberly like s- sitting in silence while the song plays, like with their heads bowed? <laughs> so I think that I think that it's the latter, and I think that that was what was so, one of the things that was so beautiful. Back to the grief for five seconds, even though I want to avoid it, like most people want to avoid grief. Um, it was a weird little funeral, right? Like that's how it is when you make a funeral when your pet dies and you have like kids of different ages, and so. I totally get how they would end up sitting and listening to that. It, re- it reminds me of a funeral of a dead pet in another canceled uh, man, man monsters mm, enterprise that Anne and I used to watch a lot. Yeah, the goldfish, Rudy Huxtable's goldfish. Um, so for those of you that are mine and Anne's age, that will be a happy little reference for you and we'll forget about everything else surrounding it. Yeah. Um, but I think that, the, but I like picturing it that they're listening to this like interracial love story. And I actually, the hot chocolate version of this, I think Gary put on a mixtape for me back in the early 2000s. Oh and so once God. you said that, I was like, yeah, no honky in my family. It's like said very like, it's like it, the music slows and it's like speaking over it. And I love the idea of them listening to that. Well, they're like, have their heads bowed over the gravestone. Wait, you guys, I forgot one more thing there. Did you notice there's another uh, moment of contention over pets, genders, <laughs> yeah, in this book, <laughs> David Michael gets really upset when the snobs are dissing Louis as a mutt, and then they're like, "He's not even pretty." And David Michael says, "Boys aren't supposed to be pretty," as though like that somehow. <laughs> yeah. oh, so much attachment to mm-hmm. <laughs> the gender binary for our pets in these books. <laughs> so much, so much. I mean, it just goes to show like how early that stuff gets learned. True. Mm-hmm. Very true. For sure. Um, a couple other things that stood out to me was when Shannon told Christy the house was on fire. Yeah. And I was like, is that a good That's so very fucked. short-sighted. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of a really bad prank to play. <laughs> if, she's, if she's actually a babysitter too, she should know. She should have known better. Yeah, so like terrifying the children. Yeah, yeah, Um, really bad. That was bad. Um, And also, we didn't bring up Jeff. Oh yeah, Yeah. kind of glossed over him. Jeff's starting to get upset. Yeah. So I feel like Jeff was not even in the TV show. He was. Yeah. Didn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's the start of. There were hints of Jeff having some issues in a couple of the prior books, I think, but now it really comes out. Yeah. The Dawn chapters are all in these books too, especially when it, when we're getting the Jeff story through a narrator, that's not Dawn. The Dawn chapters are just like, I mean, we've talked about Dawn being a parentified kid a lot, but like, it's like, she's doing so much for so many people. And it's like, Oh, poor girl. All that emotional labor she's doing. Yeah, you just got to not invest in people that aren't in your inner circle, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really read these books personally today, huh? <laughs> yeah. Inner circle. Okay, well, as for candy, there wasn't, I think there was a mention of gummy bears, but that's about it. That's it, huh? That's wow. it. There weren't a lot of, oh. like, uh, like baby, like club meetings, I feel in this book. There was, yeah, it was yeah. a lot with the Thomas Brewers. You're right. Yeah. Like, they're just, it wasn't, there wasn't that much happening with the BSC. Mm-hmm. What about um, your tallies, Esme? 
So yeah, Christy more judgmental than um, everybody except Marianne. She's the judgiest. So um, she or someone else calls herself bossy three times. Um, sophisticated is in here four times, but as Emily pointed out, a couple of them are about her neighbors. So I wasn't sure if I should just, because it does seem to be a signal word. So I wrote them all down, but two were about Stacy and Claudia and two were about the neighbors. So should I count that as two or four? Emily's holding up her hand to say two, even though we're on a podcast. Um, okay. Marianne is called shy once. Called I'm sensitive looking for twice. something and I didn't want to flip the pages. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Marianne's called shy once and sensitive twice. Claudia is called exotic again. And Dawn is referred to as an individual. And I was just saying to my co-host before we started that I need to go back and track Dawn's health food interest as a signifier more accurately. So I, that was twice in this book, but I'll get you the totals for the series next time. So that brings us to 13 babyish, which is, which has not come up again since book five. So I'm going to be interested to see if babyish just goes away. 16 bossy, 16 sophisticated, sorry, 14 sophisticated, 17 shy, six sensitive, three exotic and one individual. Did you, did you see that they use the term cuckoo? Yes. And I'm so glad you noticed that was my one social justice one that I wrote down. Got a lot of, (laughs) got a lot of difficulties with uh, mental health in these books. And that is what I wrote down. Page 58. Should we do lines? Yes. I I have a line. It is uh, on page 45 and it is (laughs) Nana and a boo boo. Yep. I wrote that down too. You want to give some context? No. Nope. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> I like the one. What? Which kid is it? Which babysitting charge that me- messes up the lyrics to the song about a hat or a cat? Is, is it Max Delaney? I think it might be Max Delaney. It, it is Max. I did not write down that page number, but he messes up the lyrics to a, a song in a way that's quite funny. Are you going to explain it or are you just going to say? Right. You have to flip through the whole book. (laughs) But you can say what he did wrong. You remember the line. I forgot. What is it? (laughs) So he learns a song about that's my silk hat, but he thinks it's a high silk hat. Yeah. Oh, my my high silk hat. My high silk hat. Yeah. Like H Y S L E. I also really liked on page 138, Marianne and Christy, you're talking to Karen about old Ben Brewer. And uh, Karen's like, what was he, Christy? And Christy says, a herpetologist? (laughs) That's pretty good. What's a herpetologist? (laughs) And why is that the word that Christy thinks? (laughs) A herpetologist is someone who studies reptiles. It's not someone that studies herpes? No. (laughs) But the word she was looking for is recluse. I guess hermit, maybe. Hermit. Yeah. That's so funny. I was like, why Why is herpetologist where her mind goes? That cracked me up. Um, I also really liked um, on page 29 when um, Amanda first tells Christy that Priscilla is purebred and she cost $400. Christy's reply is, who? I replied, trying to sound like British royalty. <laughs> yeah but my my very favorite was nana and a boo-boo also <laughs> that uh, let's do it i'm fine with that okay <laughs> what should we pizza toast to Ooh. negative reinforcement uh, fine <laughs> No, you can suggest something else. No, you're just going to annoy me until I agree to pizza toast and negative reinforcement. (laughs) I have a better one, which we didn't talk about yet. Snail. I want a pizza toast to the game Snail. Oh, okay. Oh, Anne and I played so much Snail as children, thanks to Stacy teaching the Delaney's this game that is like hopscotch, but way better. And my children still play Snail. Did I play Snail with you when you were a kid, Emily? Probably. Yeah, it's so good. I play it right now. It's the best. Yeah. Do you think we'd still be good at Let's it? Let's play it. <laughs> I am still good at it. I don't okay, know about you, it, but if we rent it, a house. Is it possible not to be good at it, though? Yeah, it's hard. Gary's not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Gary cannot play a child's game. 
I will pizza toast to snail. <laughs> to snail. snail. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Q-Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop to support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite serious literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org backslash shop backslash Stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling doubly generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl can ask for. <laughs>